This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you are listening to episode 59. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Jacob Ma Weaver, portfolio manager at San Francisco-based investment advisor, Cable Car Capital. I had reached out to Jacob a couple months ago, and after meeting in person at the LD Micro conference in December, we thought it would be interesting to discuss Cable Car's approach to investing. As you will hear in this episode, when it comes to his microcap investment strategy, the focus and hope is that management stresses corporate governance, avoids badly structured financing vehicles, and staying within compliance. The goal for this episode is to learn more about why evaluating management is key to his microcap investing approach, why corporate governance is critical to this evaluation, as well as why management teams should avoid badly structured financing vehicles and to make sure issuers are conveying their stories to investors within compliance. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 59 of the Planet Microcap podcast. Please enjoy my interview with Jacob Ma Weaver. But first, a word from our sponsor. To my loyal listeners, subscribers, and fans, Robert Kraft here, your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. The 2018 Investor Conference season is upon us. Where are you going this year? I'd like to take a second to invite you to join me and some of the guests you may have heard on this podcast to our annual Microcap Investor Conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 24 to 26, 2018 at the Planet Hollywood Resort and Casino in Las Vegas. The Planet Microcap Showcase will be two and a half days of company presentations, networking opportunities, an educational workshop, and you get to meet privately in one-on-one meetings with management of well-known public and private microcap companies. We are back with new surprises and programming that you will not want to miss. So join us for the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 24 to 26, 2018 at the Planet Hollywood Resort and Casino in Las Vegas. For more information and register to attend, please visit www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. For this episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast, I have Jacob Ma Weaver on the program. He is the Portfolio Manager at Cable Car Capital. Jacob, welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. Thanks. It's good to be here. It's great to have you on. So uh, as we do uh, on the podcast, uh, when we do get started, uh, what's your background? So I manage Cable Car Capital. It's a registered investment advisor based in San Francisco. 
I've been running it for about four years, and before that, worked at a couple of other funds uh, and McKinsey after college. Nice. Where where'd you go to undergrad? I went to school in New York, uh, Columbia, and grew up in North Carolina before that. Uh, so I was kind of a city guy at heart. I really wanted to spend some time in the Big Apple, and then uh, my wife drew me to the West Coast, and I've been here ever since. Nice. Well, what, what drew you in, into investing in general? You know, where, where did that, that passion come from? You know, I've always kind of viewed it as the best possible way to avoid narrowing your interests. I like learning about a lot of different things and investing is an excuse to go out and talk to people about what they do for a living, learn all about their industry and their business, and then the next day think about something completely different. Uh, so I've always liked that kind of variety. <laughs> That's good. I like that. So, uh, so then, how did you get your start investing in, in microcap stocks in particular? Well, so as we were talking about before, I I do microcap only as a portion of my portfolio. My philosophy has always been that size of company shouldn't really be a restriction one way or another. Uh, there are opportunities in, in all different types of securities. But uh, investing w was sort of a, a hobby for me when I was uh, younger, but really became a professional interest as I was trying to decide how to apply some of the different academic interests I'd had. And in college, I was an undergraduate literature major, then went on to do a master's in statistics. I like to joke that one was for love and one was for money. And to be quite honest, the literary aspect of reading through financial filings and understanding through a close reading of what people are really talking about, and then, of course, talking to them directly to, to better understand those disclosures is something that, that I've always enjoyed and uh, actively looked for a way to do it professionally. So after a little bit of uh, operating experience um, in consulting, which wasn't really my cup of tea, uh, in any case, it was the financial crisis, um, I, I took a job at a mutual fund and then kind of went from there. Mm -hmm. So uh, you, you translated that, uh, that experience reading uh, dense, dense literature into SEC filings. I, I think you might be the first person that uh, <laughs> has ever come on to say that. That That's good. <laughs> well, that is the way I like to joke about it. I mean, to be fair, statistics and trying to think about the world probabilistically does have its applications to investing, but I've always kind of been interested in the way the world works, broadly speaking, and uh, I think the uh, investment profession is is an interesting lens to apply to that. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know, with with all your experience, then you know, what what is your your investing strategy? You know, I know you said microcaps are a smaller part of your portfolio, but you know, I, I'm curious as to how you do approach uh, uh, assessing a new potential mic uh, investment in general, and then if there is a difference when it comes to microcaps, you know, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, there, there definitely is a difference. Um, overall, I style myself a, a value investor, as most people do. And of course, what I mean by that is is pretty broad. I, I look for securities that are trading below their intrinsic value to own for a very long time. 
so I'm, I'm really trying to take an ownership mentality in a business and invest alongside the management who's trying to generate a return on our, the investor's capital over time in some form of productive enterprise. I pair that with short selling, which is a big part of uh, where I spend my time these days and in this sort of more frothy environment we find ourselves in, and view the combination uh, as being attractive for the reasons that traditionally long-short equity has, has had appeal, given that markets have uh, some cyclicality to them. It's very hard to take a view on the overall direction of the stock market at any given time. Mm -hmm. So I believe that having some capital available uh, to redeploy when when valuations are more attractive is a really important aspect of investing. And there are really only two ways to do that. One is to have the discipline to hold some proportion of your portfolio in cash at at all times and, and just sort of know when the right point to change that might be, which I find challenging. Or if you have a short portfolio, then that is partly uh, solved for you because your short positions should appreciate in value just when you need them to the most. And as I've spent more time doing that, it's also become a focus because I, I think that assets individually can be mispriced in either direction. And there are a lot of really interesting opportunities when companies become overpriced as well. Uh, so, so that's the overall approach. But specific to microcap, uh, I would say that there I place a heavier emphasis on the quality of management. Um, you're often dealing with smaller or less established businesses where the representations that the individuals leading the charge are, are making can become even more significant in context. Or even just an execution issue could arise because it's a smaller company that that may be um, more easily impacted by uh, outside forces. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's interesting. I did an interview um, for the podcast, you know, all about short selling. And what was interesting during that interview is that, you know, when it came to assessing a potential investment, whether it's long or short, you know, there's the same amount of work that went into that due diligence where you're still doing the qualitative. You just, you know, sometimes when you're looking at a long, you think you're looking at a long idea, it becomes a short idea. Or when you're looking at a potential short idea, it may become a long idea. You know, does it work out for you like that sometimes? You know, I I agree in principle with the idea that any security could be a long or short at uh, the right price. But for my own approach, I don't subscribe to that. Mm -hmm. Um, And and the reason is one of um, essentially ethics at the end of the day. It's really a question of with a very broad universe of potential securities to invest in, if a company does not pass a certain corporate governance bar, even if it got so cheap that, that you could make some argument for a reversion to the mean or other um, reason for price to increase, wouldn't your time be better spent elsewhere? So generally speaking, I, I do exclude some securities from my investment universe when I reach a determination that it's not something I would want to own. I might short it at some point if the price got um, you know outside of a, a reasonable uh, range, but 
I'd be less likely to invert that ultimately. Um, but the, that being said, I, I think short selling in general does require a, a similar, if not more, amount of work to um, the diligence for a long position, uh, which sets up an interesting dynamic within a portfolio where short selling um, needs to have much smaller position sizes for risk management reasons. Mm-hmm. And in my case, I run a much more concentrated long book w- with much fewer positions held for a much longer period of time. And as a result, it does set up this interesting dynamic where, uh, particularly in an environment like this, I have a core portfolio of long positions that I've held for a very long time that don't require as much day-to-day engagement but it frees up a lot of time to look at lots of smaller short positions and do quite a bit of work on those. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, I, I would make the point also that I think short selling makes you a better long investor because some of the things it's important to dig into can assist your diligence um, re- regardless of what your ultimate investment conclusion is. Hmm. Can you elaborate on that? Like, What, what are some of the things that you would look into when you're looking at a short position that might guide your, your long strategy? Yeah, so I, I have different types of short positions, and, and some are more, I think, traditional, um, just uh, investments predicated on the market, uh, getting out of whack with um, investors' expectations and the underlying fundamentals of a business. Mm-hmm. So those I would exclude for a bit because... You know, whether a company meets or um, doesn't its um, analyst expectations, for example, is not as significant um, a difference between longs and shorts. But what is distinct is that often for uh, short positions, I do a lot of work looking at companies that I believe are engaged in some form of wrongdoing whether it's fraud against uh, their stockholders ultimately or some other form of um, misrepresentation that they're making to their um, you know, clients or service providers or, or others that they interact with. And those companies, I think, often are trying to represent themselves to investors differently from the way they actually behave. And I think that you are well-served as an investor to take a skeptical lens to any statement that anybody trying to sell you anything is making. And so if a management team tells you something about their business, your default response to that should be to go out and validate that assertion. Mm -hmm. Is it true or not? And that's something that I think you should do for longs or shorts, but it's something that in my experience, I've found short sellers tend to do uh, more readily. Mm-hmm. So this actually leads into my next question when it comes to, to evaluating management teams. You know, I, as, as you said, um, management really, it sounds like, really guides your, your investing thesis, you know, particularly with microcaps, you know, a lot more. But you know, for for you, you know, how do you evaluate these management teams? Yeah, so importantly for me, management quality is one of those things that is necessary but not sufficient for an investment. 
And when I'm trying to make the assessment, it goes back to what I was saying about uh, stocks that could be a buy or sell at any price. I think that it's actually very, very difficult, uh, if not impossible, as an outsider to really determine that an individual uh, executive is going to create value or do a better job than their competitors, uh, you know, unless you are yourself an, an expert in a particular industry. And, and I try to be humble enough to say that in most cases, I don't really know if the person whose entire vocation it is to run a particular business is actually better or worse than alternatives. But what I can assess is, does that individual and their associates and their investors and, and other people that they choose to associate themselves with, do they have criminal histories or have they engaged in unethical activity in the past that's been publicized or have they been associated with other companies that have um, had poor records of value creation? And so frequently the analysis is one of trying to rule out negative signals or red flags as opposed to necessarily being able to identify the positive traits. Uh, but ultimately, I do think it's very important to invest alongside people whom you can trust to allocate your capital in a way that will be productive. And so that, for me, is sort of the, the main task. Do I trust the, the people I'm entrusting my investors' capital with? Um, and, and what can I do to shore up that trust or rule it out one way or another? Mm. And you also mentioned earlier your your particular... Um, interest in in a company's corporate governance, and that can sometimes, <clears throat> excuse me, that can sometimes be something that uh, helps rule out a potential investment. So, what aspects of corporate governance, in particular, do you look at that you know help you guide your investment thesis? Yeah, so this is particularly relevant for microcap issuers, and it's a topic that trying to carry those principles uh, a little bit further into practice. I personally believe that, that we as investors have a bit of a special obligation to um, not just our, our clients and ourselves, but, but to the issuers we engage with to try to help guide them and improve their own practices. So it, it can be very um, narrow and, and specific uh, things that are identified in you know, listing venue requirements like... Um, you know, representation um, on, on boards and independence uh, of directors, that kind of thing. Uh, but, but I think where we have more of an opportunity to, to weigh in is on things like avoiding paid stock promotion. I, I think I have yet to encounter a situation where paid stock promotion was done in a way that, that was really ethical at the end of the day. And that, for me, is something that, that would tend to rule out a security as a potential long, uh, just, just for my personal um, investment restrictions. But it's also something that is a topic worth engaging with listing venues and regulators in some contexts as well, that you know, not just the way in which the company conducts itself, but the way it's structured and the types of capital it, it accepts from investors and the other concrete example I'd give is that there are certain types of financing 
that I, I think are widely recognized within the investment community as being detrimental to existing shareholders. And often a company in financial distress may engage in, in certain types of rescue financing that, that are what they are, but uh, ultimately if the terms of those securities are not properly disclosed to investors or are structured in such a way as to encourage um, you know, pump and dump type behavior, I think that that's a real um, black mark on limited parts of the microcap community and something that we can all do a better job of discouraging. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm actually going to ask you about that uh, a little bit uh, more and sp- specifically later in the interview. But I, I wanted to hit on something that, that you just alluded to, and that's this idea of regulatory compliance. Because for you, ethics compliance is really of import uh, when when you're starting to consider uh, a, a particular investment. So, you know, what, what else when it comes to compliance or, or how are you working um, uh, with your firm and also maybe with some exchanges uh, to, to try and, and, and help these companies become more compliant in the way in which that they, they conduct their business? Yeah, well, as a short seller who goes out of your way, I guess, to look for um, wrongdoing in the marketplace, you, you do tend to see a lot of it. So that colors my view somewhat. Mm-hmm. But with companies that at least appear to be well-intentioned, it's it's a question of when you're speaking to them anyway. And you know, sometimes a, a company in which I've invested may ask uh, for recommendations on how to communicate their story more um, accurately or, or more broadly to the investor community. And the types of recommendations you make in those contexts, I think the responsible thing to do is, you know, suggest behavior that complies with uh, regulation and, and also is ultimately beneficial to the company because it attracts a responsible shareholder base. So that would mean, you know, today, to give an example concretely, uh, probably it's not a great idea to change your name to incorporate the words blockchain um, <laughs> for a two-day pop, right? Uh, that may benefit some of your existing shareholders if they're looking for a chance to exit, but it, it's not a great long-term um, strategy. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're more... Um, things you can do behind the scenes with with companies that have taken a different approach and and maybe are candidates for a short book you know sometimes that does involve uh, direct engagement with regulators trying to apprise them of potential wrongdoing uh, which rarely serves as a investment catalyst but but it's more just uh, in the vein of if you see something say something so, Jacob, as you alluded to a little earlier in this interview, you, you talked about um, how companies sometimes do these badly structured financing vehicles, and that's something to, to look out for. You know, and, and this is actually something that we haven't really discussed too much here on the podcast. So if, to you, what exactly are these uh, badly structured financing vehicles? How do you recognize them? And if it's the case, you know, how do you avoid investing in companies that do some of these deals? Yeah, well, I think the important thing when assessing any equity investment is actually to consider the entire capital structure 
And equity in the context of a capital structure that may include debt or preferred instruments or you know, warrants uh, and other securities that, that may ultimately sit ahead of you as the junior uh, portion of that structure, it may mean that the, the price you're seeing reflected in the market isn't actually reflective of the real fully diluted valuation of the business. So that's the first consideration. But in terms of actual um, structures that, that are toxic in and of themselves, I think that term is actually something that, that you see uh, tossed around to describe companies that have issued securities that are so-called future price. And what that essentially means is any security that has a ratchet feature whereby the conversion price of that security is based on the market price at the time of conversion, generally with some kind of a discount. Uh, with very few exceptions, those types of issuance are so dilutive for equity investors that for you to purchase uh, an equity interest on the open market over the long term is very unlikely to be a, a good outcome for you. So something I look out for, both as a prospective short seller, but, but also as something to avoid on the long side, is companies that have um, convertible notes or warrants with conversion features uh, or, or really uh, preferred stock. It can be characterized in a number of ways that ultimately will, will be priced at a substantial discount to wherever the stock happens to be trading. Um, generally speaking, companies that need to raise money and do so at a discount to their market price are not great um, equity investments. And companies that have already raised money but are just pricing the issuance of the eventual stock that will be received for that investment at a future price are also not going to be great equity investments. I mean, is it more of a timing thing? You know, because... Let's say you fundamentally like the business, but they happen to do, you know, one of these financings. And while maybe in the interim, you see the price of the equity go down, but, you know, over the long term, it might end up, you know, really working out for you. I, I don't know. I just figured I'd, I'd, I'd ask that question. Yeah. So I think there are going to be exceptions that prove the rule. And there's certainly situations where a company is in some financial distress and taking on some form of toxic financing is preferable to an in-court restructuring process, which could be very time consuming and expensive. However, I'd say it's pretty unusual. And most of the time, uh, I believe that the financiers behind a, a lot of issuance uh, with this sort of structure are really seeking to take advantage of uh, microcap investors, quite frankly, who, who may not realize um, what is happening structurally to the security. Mm. Um, that being said, it, it's certainly possible to imagine a situation where the convertible security has already been fully converted and no further dilution is anticipated, at that point, one could conceivably underwrite an investment, but, but then you need to consider the character of the management team that took on the investment in the first place 
and really seek to determine if they did so out of necessity or if there may have been ulterior motives uh, at play. Yeah, no, it, it sounds like from your experience, more often than not, it, it tends to be the the latter situation where you, have to, right. where you have to you do have to call into question the the character of the team. I mean, um, yeah, it's just it, it, another question that came to my mind, you know, as well is you know how, how do you go about sourcing your ideas for for potential new investments? You know, do you do you sometimes even screen for situations like these to as a potential short play or, you know, how how do you, uh, how do you source your ideas? Yeah, it's a great question. When I get a lot and and always answer a little bit differently because every investment is so different. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't do a lot of screening primarily because the watch list of securities that are interesting for one reason or another is already so long that there's almost not a need but I, I have different ways of tracking different types of investments. So broadly speaking, on the short side, uh, the list of companies that could be attractive because of some association with wrongdoing at the right price is very long. And I'm, I'm generally just looking for an opportunity to get involved. And those are companies I've tracked through associations with particular individuals or investors or other companies that kind of fit some of the characteristics I was describing earlier. On the long side, it's a little different. There, I I tend to um, want to get to know a lot of businesses over a period of time. So I meet with a lot of smaller companies, try to follow them over the course of their life cycle and really seek to invest after a period of observation that that may in many cases last for years um, at a time that's attractive in the marketplace because of some, you know, either misperception on the part of other investors that that I believe is going to be ultimately rectified or some um, just imbalance of risk-reward where if the valuation spots me uh, enough that I feel like I can underwrite um, a position with very limited downside, then I have an opportunity to capitalize on a positive outcome that may or may not materialize, but that that's kind of the setup I'm looking for. Um, and then sprinkled throughout, there's some other kind of special situations. I pay attention to M&A activity, um, corporate actions of various kinds, just to follow major companies and and what they're up to and and sometimes opportunities arise out of that Mm -hmm. so this is my one of my favorite questions i love to ask you know what what experience do you draw upon as your greatest learning moment in your investing career it's a good question i think that like anyone else, the best teacher is always failure. And so the the lessons I remember most closely are those situations where I've lost money on an investment. And for me, the, the ones that have been, I think, most educational in the sense of actually changing my behavior because I've learned something concrete from it. Um, are, are a few things I've written about um, in some of my letters. Uh, so maybe the most salient would be one situation where I had sized a short position too aggressively to the point where I needed to cover. And I did that fairly early in my career and, and very quickly and concretely learned 
where my risk tolerance and limits lay with respect to short positions and you know avoiding that kind of permanent capital loss and being able to tolerate volatility is hugely important um i i think there there are other lessons that you draw from kind of day-to-day experience but it's those um those moments that really are are most salient when i think back Mm -hmm. and and what's your advice for new microcap investors looking at at this space Well, I I guess it depends if you're doing it professionally or if it's more of an avocation for you. Um, If it's a hobby, I I think I would use it as an opportunity to learn about business more generally uh, as opposed to, um, you know, striving for some particular return um, expectation and, and really try to like you would pursue any business venture, view it as a way to get to know people in a sector that you're interested in. You can meet directly with management and and really get to know a company and an industry with a level of detail that that I think most people don't um, don't develop otherwise. There, there's something about the added incentive of owning a piece of a business that that really makes you pay attention to the details. Uh, so I think that can be a productive endeavor for anyone just because, you know, when you um, invest in an enterprise, it has you thinking in your uh, downtime even of ways that enterprise could uh, be more effective. And, and the relationships you build through that and the knowledge you gain from it, I, I think you can apply anywhere in your life. If it's a new fund manager looking to um launch a fund that, that looks at microcap securities uh, either as a focus or, or as part of a broader strategy, I think this is an interesting time because um, like all um, frothy environments, it's a great time to be raising capital. It may be a less great time to be deploying that capital. And so trying to balance that and be a responsible fiduciary to your investors, I think is going to be the key determinant of success in the long run and and something that deserves a lot of uh, a lot of thought Mm. and jacob you know what what this is kind of an outside the box question but what book that you can look back on from your from your undergrad in as a literary literature major you know would you say lent itself most to being an investor (laughs) (laughs) That's um, that's not where I thought you were going with that. I thought I was going to have to cite one of the value investing bibles that, no. that everyone um, claims uh, to read uh, every night. But um, that's interesting. I I read a lot of different stuff, and it was comparative literature, so a, a lot of things in translation from foreign texts to. Um, English and, and trying to see how different cultures interpreted uh, different things. I, I want to give you a cheeky answer and, and tell you that um, Heinrich Heine, German poet's uh, poem uh, called Morphine, or Morphina, uh, was the most applicable to short selling. But <laughs> I, I think. Um, you know, maybe uh, a better answer might just be, um, I read a couple of different texts uh, based on the Odyssey, 
Um, so the, the Homer translation of, of the original epic, and then this really great um, Caribbean author whose name is escaping me right now wrote a, a book called Omeros, mm-hmm. which was kind of a Homer epic set in the Caribbean, and, and it was in the form of an epic poem. Uh, but it stuck with me a little bit uh, just for the quality of the writing. And I, I think the Odyssey is the perfect analogy in, in many respects to investing. It is something you should do with a long time horizon, um, something where you should be ready to face a lot of trials and tribulations. And of course, there are a lot of different um, uh, interpretations or lessons you can take from that narrative, uh, and, and it's informed a lot of different things within um, broadly Western culture, but I, I like it as, as a way to, to answer your question anyway. You know what, Jacob, I think a lot of my audience would definitely agree that microcap investing is uh, deeply Homeric. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, so Jacob, uh, where, where can my audience go and find more information about you and Cable Car Capital? Yeah, um, real quick, I'm, I'm remembering the name of the author. It was oh. Derek Walcott, um, Omeros, uh, just on that previous answer. But um, Cable Car, because I'm registered as an investment advisor, I do have everything up on my website, um, pretty public about what I do at CableCarCapital.com. CableCarCapital.com. Cool. And are you on Twitter as well? I am. What's that handle? Uh, that's also at CableCarCapital. And despite what you may have read or heard from some uh, famous hedge fund managers um, who were all up in arms about leaving Twitter, uh, my understanding from, from counsel is that uh, disclosing your Twitter handle in your form ADV is really not such a big deal. Um so I, th- I think it's a shame that we've lost a couple of luminaries, but there is still a thriving uh, FinTwit, uh, financial Twitter community there. Well, Jacob, here's your opportunity to uh, fill the void. I hope so. <laughs> well, well, Jacob, thank you again for joining me today and uh, I look forward to speaking again soon. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Jacob, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast, go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap Podcast, or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap Podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap Podcast, where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of StockNewsNow.com, the official microcap news source, and the Microcap Review Magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone.